Hello, and welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today's guest on the podcast is David DeSalt. He is the founder of P1 Industries in Schenectady, New York. He was a guest on this podcast back in episode number two. David started P1 after leaving General Electric and has built a solid business in machining and fabricating precision metal components for the energy and defense industries. In this podcast, we listen to how David has grown his company by keeping a key eye on building a customer service focused culture. P1 is a great example of applying entrepreneurship to a traditional manufacturing process. It was a long conversation, so I broke it into two parts, this one being part one. Ah, Bill, I remember David. Um, this is a great story, and David always has a lot of interesting points to make. We've kind of crossed paths with him a few different times in different places. Um, but yeah, I mean, if the listeners want to go back and listen to episode two, I mean, oh my gosh, I'm a little scared to go back and listen to episode two myself because <laughs> uh, we've come a long way, I think, technically on this. Um, but I think it'd be really cool because the company's really cool, and I'm really curious to hear how P1 has made it through the pandemic and all the global supply chain challenges of the past few years. So let's get right to it and jump into your conversation. Uh, with David DeSalter, part one of the conversation with David DeSalt. Sounds good, Mike. Let's jump in. So, how are you, man? I haven't good. seen you in a long time. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. But uh, how, you're still up north, right? You're still living in uh, Glens Falls Queen, area? Yeah, up in Queensbury. Still live up here. Yep. Beautiful. So, yeah, life is good. I'm enjoying retirement. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, you're probably skiing a lot, right? I am. I'm skiing a fair amount and uh, fishing a fair amount. Uh, bought a big sailboat, so sailing uh, a fair amount. So, yeah, life is That's good. Great. I highly recommend retirement. <laughs> and you, I got to ask a question. You probably don't want like this question. How old are you now? <clears throat> I am in my seventieth year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. If I could have that head of hair at forty-five, <laughs> seventy, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'm getting, I, I have a son that's, you know, in his 40s. So uh, I can, I can remember my mom always saying, I think when I turned 65, she said to me, I, meaning her, I'm, I'm really old. I have a 65 year old son. <laughs> <laughs> is your, so, is your mom still alive? No, she passed away just about a year ago. Oh, yeah, sorry. And, and she was down in North Carolina, right? You brought her up here? Or? No, we brought her up here. Yeah, so that's right. So she, she, she was down there, up here for the last uh, five, five years. That's yep. right. I remember, it's like yesterday, I remember you driving down there. You know, it was North Carolina, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. You have a good memory. So, yeah. So, yeah, we brought her up here. She had an apartment for like a year. And then that, you know, she went from her house to an apartment up here. And then uh, from that, she went to was this assisted living, which turned out really great. Yeah, it, it was it. It just I, it worked. It worked well. That's that's basically all I all I can say. And uh, really worked well for her. Worked well for us. It was really close by. And uh, and then a uh, little over just about a year ago, she had had a stroke, mm -hmm. and uh, and and uh, went to the hospital and then passed away there. And, you know, I, I don't know if you're into these types of things, but I actually made a podcast about that experience. Oh, interesting. Of, of the passing of my mom. Wow. Uh, and because um, it kind of changed, 
it, it was interesting. It, it, she was in the hospital about a week. And, and I transitioned from not wanting to be there when it happens yeah. to doing everything I can to absolutely make sure I am there to yeah. when it happens. Yeah. And, and, uh, so I, it, it moved me so much. I, I actually made a podcast episode out of it. So wow. uh, if you're interested in listening, that's episode 137. Okay. Yeah. No, I, it, it, and, you know, I am, I, I do like that stuff. Anytime somebody has an experience and, you know, learn something pretty significant from it. You know, my wife lost both her parents. I haven't lost anything, thank God so far, but um, she lost both her parents over the last 15 years. And yeah, no matter how old you are, one thing I discovered, and we lost my great, my, my grandmother two years ago, she was 97. And, uh, it, you know, I've, I've learned that no matter how old you are, losing a parent is still losing the parent, right? It's not, mm-hmm. whether you're, you know, whether you're 15 or 70, yeah. uh, it's still a big part of you that, that passes. It's, it's, it's hard. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and I will say that, uh, at, at Glens Falls hospital, they have a, a palliative care unit, um, which I didn't know about. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, I was able to get her into there and those folks were wonderful. Yeah. It was, I mean, that's what they deal with every day. Yeah. And not, not only were they wonderful, wonderful for my mom, they were wonderful for the family, you know, yeah. me and my sister and everyone else. Cause they, you know, they just, they're pros. That's what they do all the time. Yeah. And, but and even they, if you're a pro sometimes you still have to have that deep empathy and, and, and actually, you know, care deeply about people. And I think, you know, they're very good at, at recruiting and identifying those people very well. In those, yeah. Those I, I don't think you work in a palliative care unit if, if you don't have those characteristics. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, I don't know. You're not doing it for anyway. the pay necessarily. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very, as good as, as it, it, the experience was much better than I thought it was, I guess is that, or I thought, than I thought it would be, uh, I guess is the, yeah. the bottom line. So anyway, that's, we didn't come to talk about that. So oh, I, I looked up. You were on episode number two. Wow! Of this podcast. Okay. So what and year this, was that? Uh, I don't. I I'd have to look at that. But this is going to be episode one hundred and fifty-six. Wow! Wow! Talk about sticking with it and being perseverant. That's awesome. So a lot of water has gone under your bridge, <laughs> or over <laughs> the dam. So yeah. So for those people who don't know you, maybe didn't listen to that uh, episode number two. Tell us about, you know, what P1 Industries does and, and sort of, you know, what, what you do. Set the, yeah, set the so playing field. It's not, it's not the sexiest thing in the world. I always tell people, but I said, running a business is running a business. Entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. Uh, it's a con- we're a contract manufacturing business. So we're in the business of building manufacturing capabilities, which allow us to produce parts, assemblies, product lines for other companies that design those products. So we're in the business of capability management, right? I always tell people that, you know, we're one of our statements is we, we are a capabilities driven manufacturing company that helps global OEMs or original equipment manufacturers that design products like the GEs and Pratt and Whitney's of the world uh, design and deliver engineered products. And the three areas we really focus on, it's a kind of a fancy way to say it, but we, we, we work in the industries that uh, power the world, protect the world, military defense, and propel the world, transportation, aerospace. So that's kind of our, our, our thing. We're capabilities driven. We are hiring the people, putting the factories in place, the systems, the processes, the engineering capabilities to produce things that are engineered products for very large scale, high performing types of end products like airplanes, power plants, um, submarines, aircraft carriers, and we serve some of the biggest companies in the world. 
Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is, is that a lot of these, you know, Fortune 500 companies like a General Motors or a Ford yeah. or a GE, they manufacture just a small, by manufacture, I mean, actually take a big piece of metal and shape it and form it and make it smaller. They yeah. actually manufacture just a small percentage of the components that go into their products. And there's there's a whole network of companies like P1 Industries and right. others who actually manufacture those products. And then the General Motors of the Ford is sort of doing a final assembly That's and right. test. Uh, so yeah, one, yeah, one, of the, one of the questions. Thumb, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say rule of thumb is if you're the OEM, you control the design. So you do final inspection and ship. Uh, if you're the contract manufacturer, you don't own the design, you put all the capabilities in place to make all the subcomponents and items. Yeah. So so you talked about industries. So what what type of you guys bend sheet metal, you take a big ingot of aluminum and make it smaller and into a particular shape. Tell us a little bit about the the actual capability that you do. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the physical product making capabilities that we have, so we're we're pretty we're pretty well into you know high speed high speed CNC machining. Right. And, and, and some people might say, oh, that's interesting. No, no, we, we use, you know, Mastercam softwares, uh, AutoCAD software, um, um, you know, SolidWorks software. We deploy that to touchscreen CNC machine tools and we remove metal to, to make finished components that are very complex. Right. So we have we have machines that can work on a five axis basis. I mean, you can turn it, mill it, tip it, tr you know, drill, do whatever you want it to it simple one, you know, two axis machining, three axis machining, four axis machining. But one of our core capabilities is removing metal from large ingots of aluminum, titanium, inconel, copper, carbon steels, tool steels, whatever it is for the end product, Monel. And we turn it into a finished product line that can go directly into an assembly on the factory line. So when we ship a product, it is ready for final assembly test and ship at our customer's location. We don't do small parts of the product or just special processes. Other things we do is we weld and fabricate. That's putting products together, right? Taking two pieces of metal, putting it together, you know, machining a finished component. We do large scale assembly, fabrication where we bend product, insulate product, cure it. Um, we do some 3D printing on a small scale. Uh, and we also do a, a complex electromechanical equipment assembly. So what that means is we make all the all the parts and pieces in our multiple different shops in the Schenectady area, and we actually send it to one of our assembly operations. We assemble finished product or finished machines that we actually test and then ship direct to our customers. Customers. So that's what we mean by capabilities. We have all these different, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing metal removal, metal addition capabilities that we use to make products. And it's actually interesting because contract manufacturing, if I told people, hey, we're a contract manufacturer, they might not think that's so sexy, right? They might think of software programming, which is great, or they might think of being a, a broker or a hedge fund manager or, <laughs> you know, in the, in, in the crypto industry, because it's a new emerging industry. But I always tell people when I give talks, I said, look around you. Every single thing you're sitting in, everything you're wearing, every device you're using, like your phone, your computer, everything in the physical world has been manufactured by a contract manufacturer somewhere on the globe. And it's been designed by somebody and it's been manufactured by somebody. And the whole idea of supply chain, you know, and, and, and this perplexes people when you think about the complexity of our supply chain from, I mean, you think about if I make, if I make a component for a submarine propulsion system, right? That material gets mined somewhere in the world. Then it goes through additional transportation, additional uh, processing, gets formed into some raw ingot or material. 
Then it gets sold to a material company that then turns it into sheet and plate stock and rolled and all these other different uh, you know, form factors. Then it goes to a distributor. Then that distributor sells it to a company like me. I then take that material, turn it to a finished product or component, which then goes in and out for other processing that we use in our suppliers. Then we send it to a company like GE. They assemble it into a power plant, and then they ship that somewhere like in China, and then they install the power plant, which produces electricity and sends it to the home. So that, that whole supply chain world is made up of contract manufacturers all along the chain, and it's highly complex and very, very competitive. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the sales process, meaning how you get customers, right? As I think about this, you know, the the these are high value parts. That's right. So, and you don't, and and the, and the customer, your customer, doesn't want these parts to fail because they're they're a part of a component in an even higher value. That's right. <laughs> assembly, and that their brand name is on. Yep. So. So talk to me a little bit about the sales process that you go through in an industry like this and sort of the qualification that you need to go through in order for a GE or, or another uh, one of your customers to say, okay, we're going to allow you to make these parts for us or we're going to have you as our primary source or our secondary source or whatever. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny to bring it home to the audience to make it very, very practical, right? If we make a part for an airplane engine. You want to get into a 737, whether it's American Airlines, whether it's Southwest or anything else. And you want to know that engine's going to work when you're up 35,000 feet in the air. So that that gives a good picture. I, you know, whenever we talk about manufacturing, I talk about that example because every, most everyone's been on an airplane one time or another, understands the concept. So when you tell them, hey, when you're sitting in that seat, you're sitting in the exit row, you're looking at the wing of the airplane, you see the engine spinning at whatever, 5,000 RPMs, whatever it is, and it's giving you lift and you're, 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 you're escalating at 30, you know, 400, 500 miles an hour. Wouldn't you want that part to be a high quality part that's not going to break? Absolutely. Well, our customers are no different, right? Whether it's going to an airplane, a power plant, an aircraft right. carrier, submarine, an oil and gas rig that's underwater, they want the component to work exactly the way it's supposed to work. And one of the unknown factors around manufacturing is the amount of engineering and details go into the metal being used. There's all kinds of requirements around materials that are utilized for tensile strength. So it doesn't mm. shear, it doesn't break, so it doesn't you know, crack or anything else when it's under extreme amounts of heat and pressure. But you know, one of the things in our business, about three, four years ago, we made a heavy investment in sales and marketing because I want to explain the process to you. And I would actually venture to say that we've, I shouldn't say we've mastered anything, but we have dramatically improved how to sell in this industry at a very successful rate. So we we have a five-person sales and marketing team, which most contract manufacturers don't have. We're building, we're big into brand management, lead generation of new clients, customer engagement of existing clients, organic growth inside of our existing clients. So we can work with new buyers and new people across the different, you know, the spectrum of industries that we serve. But when you when you identify a client, a lot of people you know, understand the concept of customer acquisition cost and lifetime value of a client, right? So in our world, the customer acquisition cost is probably in the hundred to $200,000 range, right? Because by the time you make first contact, right, then you gotta go through, you gotta fill out a bunch of surveys. They're gonna do kind of a, what I call a desktop audit, your quality systems. Can they produce the level of quality and do they have the systems and the processes to control how they make things? So when we get it on our end, it's exactly to the specification, to right. our drawing, to our metal requirements and everything else. So that process on the front end, I'll call it more the customer integration process. That's a three to six month process. This, that, just that process alone. 
Then once they figure out, hey, they've got the systems, they've got the processes, let's have them make some, you know, a couple of products for us. They call that a first article, a first piece qualification in our industry. That might take another three, six, nine months, maybe even a year, depending on the complexity of the product line. Then once you get through that process, they'll do a product and process audit. They'll figure out that you actually followed through what you said you were going to do. And then they'll give you a conditional qualification in year two, probably. And that's when you start making small volumes of product line for them. And then over time, you got to grow that. And how do you grow that? Relationship, um, superior execution, on-time delivery, high quality, you know, all the things that come along with that. But the lifetime, so the customer acquisition cost is probably a year. The cycle is about a year to year and a half. The cost could be hundreds of thousands of dollars because you're not really going to make money on the first time you make something. But the lifetime value is, you know, for example, with GE, since we started, we've done over $200 million with GE. So the lifetime value of our clients is exceptionally higher than it is in like a small services firm or, you know, yeah. a, a um, you know, a, you know, some other SaaS firm or whatever it is. Our yeah. lifetime value of our clients is millions. And we typically... When we, when we engage with a new client through our sales and marketing processes, we won't actually call them a new client until we think we can scale them over a million dollars a year in revenue. That to us is definition of a new client. And then our goal is to develop, you know, one per quarter and, you know, stand along that track. Right. Right. And I, and I imagine that once you sort of get qualified with, with one of your clients, customers, that they're pretty sticky. They're, they're, yeah. it's, it's number one, it's not easy for them to switch either. That's right. Because they, they're going through that same investment of time and energy qualifying a new That's vendor right. for them. Right. Yeah. So those relationships, as long as you do a good job, are, are going to be long lasting and, and give you that high value. That's right. Yeah. Switching costs are high. Right. I mean, think about it in our own lives. I, you know, I always try and characterize manufacturing stuff we do to our personal lives. If you have last night, I had a plumbing problem in my house. OK, I, it was horrible, horrible plumbing problem in my house last night. I go back to the same plumber. Every single time, because I can text him, he shows up within the hour and he always solves the problem for me. I don't care. I hope he's not listening. I don't care <laughs> if he charged me 2x what he right. charged me last night. I care about the reliability, the level of quality of the work. And it's no different in our business, right? If, you, if you're making products for submarines, which we do, and that client, you know, last year we won a million dollar contract with one of our end clients. We made, we made these, these product lines for one of the submarine classes, took us the entire summer to execute on that project, and it was flawless. We did a good job. Do we do that every time? No, but we did a flawless job. When they want that project again, why would they go and qualify someone else when they got a good product on time at a fair price and we did a good job? Right. So the switching costs are very, very high. Like I said, they put a lot of investment into it, but they want to know the, the, the thing that's shifted in manufacturing pretty dramatically over the last five years is five years ago, it was a much more cost-driven industry. And again, cost is always important. Don't get me wrong. Customers aren't paying out of the, you know, they're not stupid about what they pay. However, what they're discovering after the pandemic and all the other things that went on is versatility, adaptability, quick response time, high levels of reliability, and quality. Those things are trumping cost in today's market than it, than, than it was five years ago. Because if you, like you said, the plumber comes, if they come every time, they do a good job. Why would you go anywhere else? The switching costs are very, very high. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever fired a customer? Uh, we have. Yeah. We, you know, in, in our industry, it, you know, if they're a high value client, meaning that, you know, they're, they're a brand name client, um, you know, we don't want to piss them off, but we're also not a good fit for them. Typically, you're going to start adding some buffer in your lead times and your pricing, not because you're trying to hurt them, but you're trying to maybe a customer is not a fit because 
you know, the product mix that you're making for them isn't a great fit for your capabilities. You don't want to outright say, hey, you're fired. We don't want to work right, with you right, anymore. Right. But maybe you're going to start building some lead time. You're going to start building some cost buffer into your pricing. And that in of itself starts you know, kind of delaying the relationship. And I don't want to say outright firing because I've never told a client, hey, we don't want to work with you anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, but 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 generally we will position ourselves in product mix and with clients based on pricing lead times and that. Kind sure. Of stuff. Yeah. You, you, look, you certainly don't want to burn any bridges. That's right. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I think for entrepreneurs, it's important to recognize that not everyone who knocks on your door right. should be a customer. That's right. Yeah. You know, in, 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 in the, and I've done a bunch of investing in the entrepreneur world. There's, you know, there's that, that's that product market fit. Who's the ideal client for your product. And again, it's a function of many things. How much does it cost to manage that client? You know, how much, how much, you know, FaceTime do you have to give them? You know, how seamless are they? How much money are you making with that client? The same is true in our business, right? You, there's a, there's an ideal product mix that we make with our set of capabilities that fit the client's expectations around delivery, quality, materials, pricing, and everything else. We, you know, we see things all the time where I had one client, potential client, we actually didn't never converted the relationship. You know, they quote us on a bunch of things and, and they said, oh, we've read about you and, you know, we've seen you guys, you know, but you're not competitive. I said, okay, well, maybe your product lines don't necessarily fit our capabilities and business model very well. Well, why aren't you more competitive? And they actually get angry with us. I'm like, like, hold on, you know, not everything's gonna be a perfect fit. Right. You want me to right. bend my business model to become more competitive to give you China-based pricing? We can't do that for you. That's not who we are. Our our business is built on response time, service, lead time, all of these other things. And you want long lead products and high volume and trying to get China pricing from you know Schenectady, New York. It's just not going to work. Right. And sometimes you'll do that. You'd be like, hey, look, th this is the best price we can do, and that in of itself fires a client. Yeah. So let's talk. Uh, tell me a little bit about how many employees, uh, et cetera. Yeah, started the company in 06, uh, grew pretty rapidly from 06 to 16, um, you know, hit about $18 million in uh, revenues and bookings. Um, you know, our largest client at the time was General Electric. They went through a tough time in 17, 18, just with the Alstom acquisition, a number of other things going on in the power market. Um, nothing, you know, they really created. They were the, it was the dynamics of the market at the time. And and, and so we, we lost quite a bit of business with them. And we, we invested pretty heavily in sales and marketing. And for, I, I call from 17 to 20, it was really, you know, we talked about the customer development cycle, right? Year to year and a half, you know, how, how soon can you get that client up over a million dollars? It's going to take two years. Yeah. And so between 17 and 18, we kind of are uh, from 17 to 20, we kind of plateaued as a business. We reached probably 85, 90 employees at the time. Uh, we were plateauing between that 15, $18 million range of revenues. Uh, but once all those clients started kicking in, so for example, Newport News, right? That's a, it's a shipbuilder out of Virginia. It took us two years to even get our first quotation from them with the amount of paperwork and onboarding and all the relationship building we had to go through with them. Um, but once all that stuff kicked in, we've gone on this curve now where, you know, we peaked at 18, dropped between down to 15, between 15 and 18. And then once we, all these certifications and qualified customers started coming on board from that 17 to 18 sales marketing uh, cycle, you know, bookings went from 18 to 20, 20 to 25. 25 to 29 million. Now we're up around 34, 35 million in bookings this year. Or we're, we're pacing to that right now. So all of a sudden, those clients start hitting the pipeline at the right times. And on the reverse side, we start investing. So we're up over 100 employees now. Yeah. But our business is quite interesting. I was talking to someone the other day in the service industry, and they're generating about 140 to 160,000 per employee on a revenue basis. We're up around 290 to 350,000 per employee. So we get a lot more leverage, right? Because we're not we're not just trading hours, right? We might get leverage on a price 
because the product line needs to be delivered in two weeks versus two months. Right, right. Yeah, and so you're scaling that revenue per employee dependent, there's a bunch of dependent factors around lead time quality and materials and other things. So yeah, I mean, this year, you know, we'll, we'll book, you know, 35 million in revenue. Uh, we've already booked, uh, you know, it's January. What's oh today's February first. February first. We, yeah. We've already we've already booked fifteen million. Wow. Uh, it's January. It's February first. Uh, we'll hit that thirty-four, thirty-five million dollar run. We'll probably get thirty million out, right? Some of them will carry over into twenty-four, yeah. uh, because it's a lot harder to build capabilities because you got hiring machinists, buying CNC equipment. You know, we we purchased nine new machines in the last uh, three months. Actually, one's being installed right now. Just to install that one machine, it's an eight hundred thousand dollar machine. Uh, transports another 15 you got to rig it which means you got to offload it from the from the truck you got to place in its place that's another fifteen thousand. plus you got to put foundations in you got to put crane coverage in a new electrical you know that eight hundred thousand dollars piece of equipment fully installed with everything else it's going to cost a million bucks yeah it takes time it takes time to do and we've got over 22 million dollars in equipment so you know from our perspective building the capabilities takes time um, that's why we always have a lag between bookings and what we're doing. But we have a vision. We're, we're going to take this thing to 50 million in the next three years. We figured wow. out some really cool things about our business model um, and, and and we're starting to scale it pretty good. Yeah. So with a hundred plus employees, let me ask you a question uh, from, from the perspective. I'm going to ask this question two parts. So part one is from the perspective of running a business and having employees who have to produce things because you have contracts, right? You have right. contractual obligations. You just can't close the store, right? That's right. <laughs> what what lessons did you learn from the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so uh, it, we had a unique situation too because COVID, we shut down for one day and that was it. We were an essential business. We're making products for the military, power plants, infrastructure. Um, you know, you can never, it's a tough question. We shut down for one day. One of the biggest lessons that we learned was, you know, you always have to have a readiness plan for supply chain disruption, for right. you know, risk, risk management, because, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen at the time. I'll never forget. It was like a Wednesday or Thursday and the governor made the call. We're shutting everything down. Everyone go home. And we did. And then over that weekend, we had to get our essential company status and everything else. And we nearly really never thought about that type of shutdown that could happen. And even though we opened up again on Monday morning, the big lag for us, if you fast forward nine months from that point, really became all the disruptions in the business because of the quarantine issues. It wasn't necessarily disruptions because of supply constraints. The disruptions became, well, our entire department's out because we had an exposure of COVID and 27 people had to go home for two weeks, you know, because the quarantine requirements were, I think at right. the time, were two weeks, if I remember correctly. Uh, now it's like three or four days. It's like a whole right. different animal. But that was the big issue. And, and, and we never lost three or four, more than three or four employees at a time from COVID. We had a bunch of, we kind of swept through our shop and everyone got it at one point or another. But but it was really the supply chain constraints related to labor. It wasn't even as, in, in, in driven by a rule, which I don't blame him for the rule. No one knew how bad or how good it was, you know, what right, COVID was. Right. But that was the big thing that we didn't plan for. Be like, hey, I need to get this aluminum. Well, we can't get it to you for two weeks. Why? Our our, our aluminum department shut down. Right. Well, why did it shut down? Well, we had an exposure. One had one person at COVID sent everyone home for ten days, and 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 that became something learning about. You know, how much material do you have to stock? You know, how do you do some readiness plans? And you know, do you have multiple sources for things in order to mitigate some of that risk? Um, and, you know, we never shut down. We never we never had we had some negative impact on our business related to supply constraints because of that labor issue. We weren't buying stuff from China. We weren't buying stuff from India. And we had to wait for ships and everything else to come over. 
we were buying stuff from the distributor down the street, but they would lose an entire department because of exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you change some things in the operation of your business? Because if I remember correctly, you you basically ran one shift most of the uh, right. You're a one shift we, we operation. Run a, we, run a, we run a small second shift, but we're a one okay. shift operation across the board. Yeah. We have three factories. All factories are on one, one shift. Yeah. So did you change anything during the COVID times to, you know, spread people out or uh, other operational things? Hard, hard to do because your equipment are where, the, where it is. You know, you can't just pick up one piece of equipment and move it to the next place. Look, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what we, we did. We sanitized the shop every single night. Right. So we, we brought in a third party firm. They would sanitize all the controllers of the machines, the, the shop floor, the bathrooms and everything else. I'll be honest with you, and I hate to say this out loud, we didn't change much else. We didn't change much no. else. We, we couldn't, right? We needed to be on site working. That's why everyone keeps talking about these hybrid work environments and who works from home. I'm like, I haven't, I'm the wrong person to ask about anything because we never <laughs> work from home and we don't have any right. hybrid workers, you know? Right. You got to come to work and make phone calls and, you know, receive materials and launch it and run machines and finish products and quality and all these other things that go on. Um, we didn't really change a lot in terms of internal operation. We didn't have, we couldn't. Other than sanitizing, wearing masks that we're supposed to do, you know, you know, we did some, you know, temperature checks and stuff like that. But we kind of just rolled along business as usual. I got to be honest with you. Yeah. Bela, great, great conversation and really cool example of an entrepreneur that found a niche, developed a competitive advantage around that niche and then scaled the business. And this is kind of the thing we talk about when we talk about entrepreneurs, um, you know, trying to figuring it out and being successful start with a niche, get a competitive advantage. What are you really good at? What do you do better than rivals and grow it? It's kind of a perfect story. How do you want to start until, uh, in terms of pulling these threads together? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. Uh, so I, to me, a couple of things that really stand out. One is that this is a hardcore manufacturing business, right? And, and for how many years have we heard that we can't do that here in this country, our costs are too high, and we're just going to be a service business. Uh, and, you know, part of the part of the opportunity here is that we have lost a lot of our core manufacturing expertise and abilities. And David has identified that as, you know, hey, this is someplace that I think we can make a significant contribution in. And so I think I think that's that's sort of, you know, my hat's off to him, right? He says, this is important. It's important for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think we can we can build the skills necessary uh, 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 to do this in a competitive way and, and to scale it. And the other interesting thing that I thought he, he, we talked about is that he's this is not about low cost because he knows he can't win that battle. He, he cannot be the low cost producer. So he, he competes on other metrics like service, quality, response time. And if you think about it, in the long run, I think many, many companies have realized that those aspects, service, quality, response time, are much more important than low cost. Uh, so I think, you know, he's figured out what he's good at. He's figured out what the company's good at. And, and he's, he's kind of moving forward on those. I agree. And I think he's riding a wave here and it's maybe part of driving this wave that it's important. And, you know, feel free to disagree with me because it's only my opinion. I don't have a lot of data to back it up, but I think we are at an inflection point 
um, in terms of we really overemphasize lean and low cost and right trying to to be like Walmart, right? Everyday low prices, and that that was what we should strive for in industry and as a country. And I think you and I have talked about this a lot of times that that um, that is not it's it's not a one size fits all approach, right? That there are some areas where yeah, low cost is important, but there's limits. Right. And I think we're seeing the limits now in terms of the impact on um, having people being able to make a living wage, uh, not having such a low um, stock level of important raw materials that it's uh, if there's a disruption that you're in trouble or single sourcing to lower your costs. A lot of these things, the cost was uh, was lower, but it, the the risks were greater. And we've seen so many of these risks come uh, and actually happen that I think the pendulum is swinging the other way. And it's like, look, the cheapest isn't always the best. Let's pay people what they need to have a nice life. Let's have enough stock and enough sourcing capacity that we can withstand disruptions to our business, that this idea of continuity is important. And yeah, people have to pay more for that. And I think that's driven maybe some of this inflation that we've seen in the last year that at least around my parts is starting to die down back, die down again. Um, but, but some of that is I think this pendulum swing the other way saying, wait a minute, we were emphasizing low cost too much. Sometimes you have to pay the true cost, pay a little more, right? But you get these ideas of service, of quality, um, ability to respond, ability to withstand a, a you know a disruption. These are all important capabilities that are that are people should be willing to pay for. Um, and I think David's company has been a prime driver of that mentality. Um, that you know, and he he I think uh, gave some examples, right? Of um, you know, we're not going to be the cheapest, but we're going to be the best in the long run, best in class and be a good partner. Um, and we're going to charge a fair price and we're going to make a profit on it, but we're not going to gouge and we're going to share that with our workforce. And I think that's 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 the direction. And I think I, we're seeing this in a lot of industries, um, but I think David's way out ahead on this. Yeah, agreed, Mike, and, and well said. Uh, you know, I think this might be a good transition to uh, let folks uh, listen to the second half and then you and I will come back uh in the next episode and uh, summarize that as well it's a good point Bela, as usual um so yeah let's wrap this one up part one of david desalt uh thanks for joining us we hope you found the episode interesting and we encourage you to come back for ep 157 david desalt part two um, and then we'll be back with a wrap-up of the both ends of the conversation after that um, in the meantime if you have questions or you need to get in touch with us feel free to contact us via email Bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do follow the podcast if you haven't already. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. All right. Looking forward to part two, Bela. See you from over here in Münster, Germany. <laughs>